Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 18th episode of The Brief. I am your guest host, Ma'amun Sbeh, MEPRA Executive Board Member and APCO Worldwide MENA President. Today, I will be speaking to Rich Gallen, political commentator and former Republican campaign strategist, as well as Brandon Neal, senior director at APCO Worldwide in Washington, D.C., former Democratic campaign strategist. We will be examining the U.S. elections that is coming next Tuesday, and hopefully we'll all learn from what we're going to hear about communications and how elections affect communications and vice versa. So welcome both Rich and Brandon. Before we start, I would like to ask Rich and Brandon to just explain about their backgrounds and their connections to U.S. elections. So, Rich? I uh, have been a lifelong Republican. I twice ran for city council in a little town in Ohio, a state pretty much in the middle of the country. Uh, Lost the first time and won the second time. But I've been a Republican for many, many decades until this year when I voted for, uh, for Biden. I was Dan Quayle's press secretary when he was a congressman and a senator, and I was Newt Gingrich's press secretary when he was uh, the whip, the number two Republican in the U.S. House, and then ran the political office, uh, the communications division of the political office when he was speaker. So my, my Republican bona fides, as we say, I think are pretty complete, and the fact that I voted for a Democrat this time uh, is very telling. Thank you. Brandon, what about your background? I uh, have 20 years of experience in political strategy and uh, and a Democrat, lifelong Democrat. I had my original start with organizing within the NAACP national office uh, and then worked for democratic strategists down in Brazil. Um, Went over to the Democratic Governance Association as deputy political director and then served as uh, national political director for the DNC. Uh, formerly worked for the Obamas for the last 12 years, um, both in the administration and before that on the uh, campaign, uh, having worked as senior advisor to uh, Democratic uh, VP nominee Karen Bass as a political director and running her campaign, and then most recently served as senior advisor to Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, during the uh, Peak for America uh, presidential bid. And then now I'm at Apple. So, Thank Rich, how has it been? How do you feel today following up the, on the elections? Exhausted is the answer to that. The, um, but let me say a word about APCO worldwide. I, I know some people there, and now I know Brandon, who I did not know before. But I've been in the public affairs business in Washington for a long time, and APCO worldwide has always been somebody that, that people that were not at APCO wish they were, that the reach and scope of APCO's offices, their people, and their ability to help their clients is unparalleled. And I think anybody who's looking for a public affairs agency would do well to go to APCO earlier. Thank you. Thank you. So kind of you, Rich. (laughs) This election, which will be on Tuesday, uh, really isn't on Tuesday anymore. The rules, like many other things, many other rules, Brandon, that have changed in this particular election cycle, as we like to call it, is the scope and the, the, the length of the voting process. I voted, I think, two or three weeks ago. I live in Virginia, just outside 
of Washington, D.C. And we have early voting. And my wife and I got our ballots in the mail and uh, filled them out. And the next morning went down to the voting place and put them in the in the ballot box. So so no matter what anybody said between two and a half weeks ago and, and Tuesday, where we can't change our votes, so we were locked in. And now, as, as we're recording this, over 70 million Americans have already voted. So if people are looking for a last-minute event to change the scope of the election, it's going to be very hard to do because so many votes are already locked in. Well, uh, on this note, uh, you voted uh, by mail, as you said. Let me just ask uh, the question. I've been watching the news almost daily. I've been hooked to it right now, especially that whenever I switch on any American channel, uh, there is only one news, th one news theme, which is the elections. And I keep hearing the term voter suppression. What does it mean? You know, voter suppression is nothing new within the United States. It's a, uh, essentially the strategy used to influence the outcome of the election. <clears throat> and this is often done by discouraging or preventing people from voting, specific groups. And historically within the U.S., particularly within the African-American community, you look back on history uh, during the Civil Rights, Jim Crow era, there were a concentrated, concentrated effort to make sure that people of color did not vote because we knew uh, people of color particularly black people voting would uh, be a part of the democracy and be a part of uh, the voting efforts and part of creating laws and electing people clearly uh, within the United States. And so this has been a, a, a longstanding effort in history of America uh, from preventing people um, from voting. So this is a new, nothing new to America. It's unfortunate that we have, uh, have progressed and have done some uh, progressive things have changed in terms of moving past this to a certain extent. But unfortunately, in this uh, current time in 2020, that uh, the, the commander-in-chief has uh, particularly narrowed out voter, suppress, voter suppression as a strategy to use for this upcoming election um, on Tuesday. So essentially, voter suppression— How does it work? How does it work? How do you suppress uh, votes? Sure. Well, you su suppress people. Well, back in the day, historically, you would stop people, uh, particularly African-Americans, from voting. When people were registered to vote and they would go to vote, uh, they would have particularly uh, people working in the polls or officials who would make up impromptu rules, such as asking for people to recite the Constitution on the spot uh, or by saying, could you please, oh, you are asking for an extra form of ID that was not required um, for anyone else, but because of the person, the color of your skin, you're asked to provide, let's say, for example, an extra form of ID, which you didn't bring. You know, back then, people walked for miles to get to, uh, to the uh, uh, polling sites in different places. So you would prepare ahead of time to bring the right credentials with you. And nowadays, you know, you hear that, you hear about, um, you know, people being prepared by bringing, I don't say guns, but you know, telling people to, to to go in to the polls next Tuesday and be prepared to quote unquote monitor the election site. I see. And so that is so. Awesome. So basically, it is almost like a, a kind of uh, unexpected barriers put in front of potential voters to make them not vote Absolutely. or to make vote their vote uh, not count. All right, there is another term. There is one more term I want to ask before we go into communications, because we hear it in the news so much. I want our audiences in the Middle East here to understand it. Uh, 
what is the electoral college? And, and maybe Rich, you could answer that. What is it and how is it different from the normal elections that we all know, which is a popular vote? Well, this goes all the way back to 1789 uh, when the Consti U.S. Constitution was being drafted and voted on. And there was an issue about the big states back in those days. That would have been Virginia was the biggest state and New York was probably the second biggest, overwhelming the smaller states. And so the, the, uh, the, the framers, as we call them, the framers of the Constitution were looking for ways to sort of balance out the power structure. And so in America, we have um, the House of Representatives that is based upon the population of the state. So California has, what, 50 or 53 members of Congress, whereas a small state like Delaware has one. But they everybody gets two senators, no matter how small or big your state is. And that's a whole other discussion. But the way the Electoral College is structured is that if in 49 of the 51 jurisdictions, if you win the majority of votes in a state, then you get all of the electoral votes. And the electoral votes are the number of members of Congress plus the two senators. So in Virginia, the Electoral College is, is 13 votes, 11 members of Congress and two senators. And what happens is that because uh, 270 is the magic number. If you can get 270 electoral votes, then you win. It doesn't matter how many states are involved or, or anything else. And so on Tuesday, when people hear the, the counting going on, uh, every time there's a, they say, well, now Virginia goes for Biden, which is likely, um, then 13 votes will go into Biden's column. If Biden can get to 270, then the election's over. Some people think that's fine. Many people think that's wrong, but what it, it's, the, it's the system we've had for a long time. And to everybody knows those are the rules. So saying that okay. somehow it's unfair and I should have won is like saying, well, you, your team might have scored more goals, but we held the ball, ball longer in your territory, so we really should have win. No, that's not the way you score it. You score it by the number of, of you know, balls that go to the back of your net. Okay, well, I mean, thank you. It, it's very helpful to understand how the U.S. democracy functions. Uh, now let's move into the tools of communication, and that's something that's familiar to us as communicators. You know, given the restrictions uh, on the campaigning due to the COVID, what are the tactics you think are being used this year, this time, that haven't been used in the past to reach uh, the voter even if they're not out and about? Uh, Brandon? Sure. So I would say during this cycle, Vice President Biden and Senator Harris have done a great job of speaking to the American people directly by using social media. Um, obviously through Zoom, which we all use as our day-to-day -day communication mostly now, but um, between the Zooms and identifying social media and using this, really their campaign surrogates, I think they've done a great job of communi communicating the strategy. Clearly this is a campaign um, unlike any other before, and just in terms of this whole 2020 cycle, so the standard uh, field campaign, the ground campaign that every presidential cycle or campaign does every cycle, you know, is no more. So this has been very unique in the sense of, um, of course, campaigning online, but I think they've been very effective through Zooms. Uh, if you notice the difference between two candidates, you see the Biden camp is more aligned with 
acknowledging the pandemic. So you see a lot of his events uh, with a lot of social distancing, a lot of um, guidelines and events. You see a lot of mask wearing, whereas the uh, Trump campaign does the exact opposite, where there's a lot of people in masks. You don't see a lot of people wearing uh, mask at all or any type of social distancing. And one other thing I would say that the campaign has done effectively in terms of the Biden campaign is that they have really mastered using their campaign surrogates. You see a lot of surrogates out now, not only on this one TV, but through a lot of social media events, campaign events, fundraising events. We see like Mayor Pete, uh, Senator Warner, excuse me, Senator, yeah, Senator Warner, Senator Elizabeth Warren, a lot of celebrities. Uh, you see most recently this week, Former President Biden uh, was in Florida yesterday. Obama. Excuse me, Obama. <laughs> Obama. Sorry, that was a Freudian slip. President Obama in Florida yesterday, uh, campaigning for his former VP um, as well too. So you know, you see an unleashed of now uh, popular and mass appeal candidates as surrogates getting out in the field. So I think they've done a good job at that. What about on the Republican side, Rich? What what tools have they been using that are well, have not been used before? Well, they've got one tool, and his name is Donald Trump. And <laughs> um, and if you like him, you love him. If you don't like him, you hate him. Uh, and uh, but what Trump discovered, what he brought to the table with him, was that we used to talk about the twenty four hour news cycle. That you didn't have to. You didn't you used to, when I got started. We used to do a, a weekly newsletter. And things like that. Then this, the news, when when cable news became ubiquitous, that everybody everybody watched cable news wherever they were. Uh, that it, we called it the 24-hour news cycle. And what Donald Trump did is he recognized that there's not a 24-hour news cycle. Somebody else mentioned the other day that there's 24 one-hour news cycles. So he just sits there and cranks it out and cranks it out. And in the first two and a half years of his administration, this was so alien to have a president tweet 30 times a day or any times a day uh, that it took everybody by surprise and everybody would shift and cover whatever Trump's most recent tweet was about. Then they sort of started getting tired of it. And I think what has happened now, and we can talk about this more later, is that the whole political infrastructure in the United States is just exhausted and wants to just put its head on the pillow and say enough already. But the I think more than FaceTime, Facebook, FaceTime, how old am I? How more than Facebook and uh, Instagram and Reddit and all the other social media opportunities, Twitter has become the uh, the leading mechanism for these candidates to um, to communicate to their their supporters uh, on a daily basis. For down what we call down, what we call down ballot uh, campaigns, people running for U.S. House or or the uh, delegate to their state House of Representatives or mayor, those people, Facebook is the lifesaver for them because everybody has what's called a you know this what's called a Facebook page, and that allows them to communicate directly to their supporters on a regular basis with their schedule of the day with their news update of the day but for the massive campaigns twitter i think is the central is the central tool well i mean on that point um last elections there were major allegations and even um by even the fbi that there has been 
hacking that has been influencing by external forces so which makes those specific tools you're talking about twitter and facebook extremely vulnerable to manipulation and now this election we hear that uh, twitter and facebook are removing accounts or uh, shutting down accounts that uh, claim false news what constitutes false news and who decides what's false news and what isn't? Is this accepted? In the US, we are so committed to the whole concept of free space, free speech, freedom of the press, and those sorts of issues, because I think most of us would rather suffer with the Russians having trolls, as we call them, um, if, you know, putting up fake, fake tweets and fake Facebook postings on the theory that Americans, if they're paying close enough attention, will recognize fake news for what it is, uh, as opposed to have putting it in the hands of people in Washington, D.C., or one of the state capitals to say, you may read this, but you may not read that. We think in, in America, we call that a slippery slope. Once you, once you start down there, it's very difficult to stop. And I think, from my personal viewpoint, I'd rather put up with Russian interference like that and depend on American voters to recognize it for what it is than to give um, somebody at the Federal Communications Commission the right to, to turn off somebody's newsfeed. Right. And I would uh, say... Brandon, are you, do you agree with this aspect of no regulation whatsoever of the space? So I agree... Uh, to the stance of free speech, you know, in terms of us being the, the 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 right the right to free speech, what I don't agree what I don't agree with is how um, our commander in chief has really used this as a way to spin the messaging of the day. And so, when you look at overall news that are coming around, especially as it relates to numbers. You can't lie in numbers, so you can't spend numbers. You can't spend 220,000 people have died from COVID. Uh, you can't spend the numbers of 70 million people have voted early uh, because of what's going on in this country. You can't, you know, in terms of absentee ballots, you can't spend the number of people, black individuals who have been killed by the police under this administration. So, you know, fake news is one thing, in, you know, in terms of uh, generating uh, speech. But in terms of actual facts, you can't discriminate and, and, and just kind of throw that away and say this is fake news when the reality is the truth. So I think it weakens our credibility um, as a whole when you look at these numbers, because numbers don't lie. Well, I mean, there is a huge difference between – I'll let, I let you answer this, uh, Rich, but there is a big difference between um, what we call fake news, which is manufactured stories, and lies. Right, but are they are they different? I mean, or are they the same? And who governs that? I mean, Rich, I'll let you answer. Well, in, in the, the, um, the I, I wasn't arguing for no regulation. I mean, at some point you you have to have stop signs so people know who gets to go through the intersection first. But the um, but I think what we're talking about here is uh, the in terms of Trump, in terms of him literally making things up and saying it's nighttime when it's clearly daytime. And what we know now is that 40-something percent of the American voting public will say, well, it's, it, may not be, it may not be nighttime, 
but it's beginning, the sun's beginning, the sun will set at some point. So they, they'll excuse Trump's lies. They'll make, make up reasons to, to suggest that it's okay. That is different than the Russians or the Iranians or the Chinese planting fake stories uh, and fake evidence to support those stories. Uh, that's what I'm, I mean, I, 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 there is a difference between, between outside interference and candidates just making things up. And I, I, I think that when you, we'll know on Tuesday what, what the answer is, uh, but I believe that in the end, uh, American voters will uh, largely see Trump for what he has become, which is simply a fact manufacturing machine. Well, on that point, uh, I want to ask about what is being used seemingly effectively, which is uh, negative advertising, which is instead of saying, if you vote for us, your life will be better, but it's uh, instead using the tool, if you vote for him, if you vote for him, we're all going to die. So does is negative advertising better? Is it more effective? I'm not asking better from a moral perspective in terms of impact. Is it considered a more effective tool? And are both sides using it effectively and how? Let me ask each of you on this. Maybe I'll start with Brandon. Sure. I think um, clearly the Trump campaign is using more uh, of, of negative ads and uh, a negative approach in terms of this campaign cycle. If you look at both of the campaigns in terms of comparison, uh, one is more, Biden campaign is more focused on issues and focusing on uh, creating messaging on issues that affect the American people and providing facts. I think if you look at um, the Trump campaign, they're more focusing on uh, personal attacks and looking at Biden and his family history and also trying to look at uh, the vice, uh, vice president nominee's uh, family history or personal history as well, too, or record uh, when she was attorney general in California. So, you know, there's a comparison, the contrast in two approaches of the campaign. Do I think that negative ads work? I think they do work for those who are less informed and those who are not familiar on the issues. Um, I think, you know, what ultimately what Americans will decide on Tuesday is who has the better message. And so, you know, I'm always, I'm old school and I, I go with the old adage of, uh, the former first lady said, when they go low, we go high. So I think most Americans will resonate with the uh, taking the high road and looking at the messaging of the two candidates to see which uh, candidate is better suited to be president for them. Well, the, the uh, rich. Well, I guess yeah. I guess if I may intervene here, the last elections approved that methodology wrong, right? Uh, we had uh, a campaign that took the high road and a campaign that took the low road, and it ended up where it ended up today. And then that's why my question comes, uh, does, isn't the negative ad a more effective tool? Rich? Well, uh, it's, it's, sorry, sorry, just to jump back in there, just real quick, but also keep in mind, at that time, four years ago, we had two different candidates. We had a, two different candidates, uh, and I think this candidate we have now is more likable than the candidate we had in 2016 that ran against Trump sure. during this time. Yeah, what Brandon is, I absolutely agree with what Brandon's saying. No, a lot of people voted for Trump or didn't vote at all because they didn't like either one or they didn't like Hillary Clinton so much that they said, oh, I'm gonna vote for Trump, I just can't stand her. I hate him. Nobody hates Joe Biden, there's nothing to hate. Uh, so he may, not, he may not cause people to 
jump in front of buses on his behalf, but he seems to be the safer candidate. And so to your specific point, Mahmoud, the uh, negative advertising, in this case, the negative advertiser is Trump himself. And on the other side, there's a group called the Lincoln Project. Uh, my son is one of the leaders of that, so our listeners have to calibrate what I'm about to say. Uh, but the, the, the Lincoln Group has taken over the negative advertising role for the Democratic Party and for the Democratic nominee. So they run these ads every day uh, that just try to try to get inside uh, the Democrats' head, as, as we call it. Uh, they say they're living rent-free inside Trump's head so that the Biden campaign is free to run very soft, very positive, very aspirational ads and give, make, it a, make that the contrast between the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. It's a very effective strategy that I'm not sure anybody thought about ahead of time. But once they recognize the opportunity, they've taken advantage of it. Did, did Biden's strategy not to uh, have any negative campaigning while uh, Trump was in hospital uh, do work well for him? I think so. I, I definitely think so. I think that uh, it was <clears throat> a, a, a recognition of civility. And I think that the American people saw the difference again um, of, of one campaign, one style of leadership versus another. And I think it was a lot of respect that went into uh, that. I mean, you're dealing with someone who's dealing with a life or death situation and all gloves off, you know, and I think it showed civility, it showed leadership, and it showed someone uh, that can put partisan politics aside um, and be the bigger person and, and help to build America back to what it is. And I think that also speaks to what Joe Biden is, you know, and his, his campaign slogan is build back America. How do we rebuild uh, civility back into this country? And so I think he definitely exuded leadership and showed what uh, a president, a characteristics a president should have. And that's, and I think to a great degree, it's the vision most Americans have of themselves. It's what they want America to be like. And I think that as we move through, assuming Biden wins on Tuesday, which I think is likely, uh, that will have an effect, not just in the United States, but across the planet, as, the, as America tries to regain its role as a soother and healer, as opposed to a divider and separator. Well, um, I'm going to hold you to that point, which is you think likely Biden would win uh, and, and, and come back to that point. But let me ask another question regarding the tools. Uh, are the traditional tools of uh, election campaigning like town halls, um, rallies, uh, even debates uh, as effective as it used to be uh, right now? Does a debate matter anymore? Rich? Oh, oh, I think so. I think they matter a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you know, Trump's performance in the first debate had a real effect on the campaign because either he it, it didn't make them the percentages go up or down very much, but it did stop the campaign cold in its tracks. One of the famous sayings in American politics is you can always raise more money and hire more people. What you can't do is get more time. And every day after that first debate that people were talking about Trump's dreadful performance was the day that Trump and Trump's people couldn't talk about anything else. 
and it, they couldn't talk about what they wanted to talk about because reporters would always come back with, "What? What was that?" And so, yeah, I think it, I think it had an effect. Um, okay, now. Uh, we're almost at time. I'm going to just ask maybe a couple more questions before we close. Uh, we Many people think that Biden will win. This time, last elections, most people thought uh, Trump would lose. And uh, what happened is something else. Uh, polls uh, did not work then. And are they working now? And if they're working, why are they better now than before? Sure. Uh, well, I'll say this. As someone who was political director at the Democratic National Committee on, in 2016 at this time, one of the things I think that uh, did not work in uh, our favor is that we paid closer attention to national polls versus state polling. And so, as you see, a lot of the uh, battleground states, such as Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, were states that you know clearly uh, we took for granted. And I think it was a lot of emphasis on, again, national polling. But if you look at the statewide polling that's occurring right now, you know, Biden and these particular battleground states are, are, are you know, and, uh, are leading in, in the states that we lost last time is leading at least three to four points um, on the state and local level. So I think polling matters. But I also think that it's important to get an assessment of both polls, not just on the national level, but also on a state and local level as well, too. And then again, I also think the strategy in terms, well, I also think in terms of who the candidate uh, is matters as well. So I think we have more likability in the Joe Biden than we did in the candidate uh, Clinton in 2016 versus now. And also, you have to be careful, not in politics like in war, generals are always fighting the last war and people like Brandon and I are always fighting the last campaign. This is a new campaign. It's there are new, new, new issues on the table. New people involved, and uh, what we keep telling people, and then we forget ourselves, is that a poll is a, is a measurement of where people are today. They're not predictive. They don't say if if this is the polling, this is the, what the polls say, and so this is what's going to happen. Uh, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month, or next Tuesday. It's only what's happening today. Then we forget about that and think that it's a prediction of what's going to happen. I agree with Brandon. I think the not only is is um, is uh, first of all, where Trump was Trump was an unknown. People like me, I didn't vote for him, but I didn't vote for Hillary either. Uh, I wrote in the former governor of Ohio, but um, but this time I voted for Biden because I really do believe that we need a change because this is a referendum on Donald Trump. Whereas last time it couldn't be a referendum on Donald Trump because he hadn't been in office yet. And a lot of people, including me, believed that he would grow into the office of the presidency. And I think a lot of people are terribly disappointed that if anything, he's gone back the other way. Well, uh, and on, on, on this last point, Brandon, would you like to add something before you close? I think we have learned a lot, and I think we have a lot of expectations and anxiety and uh, anticipation uh, for next Tuesday. Uh, whether America knows it a lot or not, uh, the world is watching extremely closely. And uh, people have different views of, of what the outcome of this election will mean to them. So, Brandon, 
Yes. What uh, What do you think is going to be the outcome? Oh, and yes, okay. Whether, whether will this have an impact on our part of the world here in the Middle East or not, from your point of view? So, absolutely. I think that um, next Tuesday we'll see the American people vote on uh, values that are uh, directly affecting all of us. I think they'll uh, do the right thing by, honestly, I think J Joe Biden will be our next president. Um, I think in terms as it relates to foreign policy, I think, you know, this is uh, a time for us to restore, rebuild, um, and go back to uh, building partnerships through uh, other countries uh, throughout the world. Um, I know the, the U.S. needs to be brought back into compliance with this, our values, uh, our rule of law, and the vital role we once played in the world um, as a beacon of hope, democracy, security, and leadership. I think you'll also see a lot of um, uh, re resetting and uh, restorative efforts that was done under the Biden, uh, Obama, Biden administration as well too. Uh, Long-standing foreign policy goals, you know, have uh, uh, have always uh, rang true as it relates to you know under a Biden and Obama administration. So I think you'll see very similar um, restorative efforts as it relates to building partnerships with the rest of the world um, next Tuesday. Or after next Thank Tuesday. you, Brandon. Rich, is there any last words before we close? Yes, I just this briefly. I. I in, in the mid 90s, in the mid 1990s, I worked for a company called EDS uh, and, uh, and I was in charge of the Middle East. So I owned, so to speak, everything from Qatar over to Cairo and from Turkey down to Oman. And uh, this was during George H.W. Bush and the early Clinton days. And I could, I was proud uh, to, to say I was an American and I was proud to bring American culture to the to the to the table and American kind of enthusiasm for bringing the world together in that case through technology. Uh, now I'm afraid if I had that job, I would spend all day every day apologizing for the United States. And I think what we're looking for, many of us, is to go back to those older days. Our headquarters was in Bahrain at the time. That I could go into my office or go into the into Manama. And people would say, oh, that's the American, and smile when they said it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for fantastic contribution. I would like to thank you on behalf of MEPRA and on behalf of myself and everybody who is listening to you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say something before we close. The 2020 MEPRA Awards shortlist announcement is not too far away. Make sure you are following MEPRA's social channels or head to mepra.org slash awards on the 12th of November. Plus, don't forget to save the date for the virtual MEPRA Awards ceremony on the 9th of December at 5.30 p.m. Thank you very much.